Hey, and welcome to Tomorrow. I'm your host, Joshua Topolsky. Today on the podcast, we discuss cults, penis scanners, and supernatural eruptions. But first, a word from our sponsors. Whether you're a small business owner or a first-time blogger, HostGator has all the tools you need to build and host your website. HostGator's 24-7 expert support is always available to assist you via live chat or email anytime you have a question. There's even a 45-day money-back guarantee, so if you decide it's not for you, there's no problem. Go to HostGator.com slash tomorrow to sign up and get 60% off. Quick note before we get into the show today, uh, we are talking to the creator of The Leftovers, and so uh, we're going to be talking a lot about the HBO show The Leftovers, which has just ended after three seasons. Uh, If you haven't seen the show, which I highly recommend, uh, I'll just give you a quick synopsis. It takes place three years after an event called The Departure, where millions of people, 2% of the world's population has disappeared from the planet, and there's all sorts of cults, and people are very confused and depressed and in various states of despair. Uh, and it's pretty heavy, but also really funny and gets really crazy in the second and third season. Uh, it was written by Tom Parada. It was uh, co-created by Parada and Damon Lindelof of Lost fame. And I just want to say before we get into this conversation, there are significant spoilers for the show. So if you haven't seen it, maybe watch the show and then listen to this or listen to this. You won't know what we're talking about, really, and then watch the show. My guest today is a novelist and Oscar-nominated screenwriter, best known for his novels Election and Little Children. Uh, Most recently, he is very well known for the HBO show The Leftovers, which he created and wrote and executive produced. I'm, of course, talking about Tom Parada. Tom, thank you for being here. Yep, my pleasure. Uh, So... So I last night on Twitter, I, I, I said, hey, I'm going to interview you, and I asked a lot of people about this show. I, by the way, I became a huge fan of the second and the third season, and one of the questions I got, and I don't know, this is sort of a meta question, but I don't know if you want, you want to talk about it as you can, but, but what was interesting to me is there is a, there's a huge shift uh, from the first season of the show, I feel, there's this almost reboot of the show in the second season, which I was totally caught off guard by. Uh, and admittedly, I kind of hate watched the first season. I've, this is a horrible way to start an interview, but the first season I was like, this is intriguing, and then made me angry. And by the end of it, I was like, I'm never watching the show again. And then I put on the second season, and I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Can you talk a little bit about that transition, or if that was intentional, or you know, what, what, what was there a decision made to change the tone or the place? Like, can you speak to that at all? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the the way that I actually uh, answer this question is to say that the tone shifted midway through the season one. Um, it was still, it was still extremely dark. Um, but I feel like if you watch episode six, um, of season one, you know, it's called guest. It's about Nora at a, uh, a departure related convention. And she has an encounter with, you know, these loved ones, dolls that are, um, you know, mannequins to help people grieve for the departed or, and then she has like a screaming fight with this self-help author. Um, it, it's a, it's a pretty funny, weird episode. There's no, uh, violence, and then it ends with that amazing Holy Wayne hug. Um, and I feel like we were just, and it also begins with Nora being shot by uh, by a prostitute while she's wearing a bulletproof vest. You know, it just felt like the show was sort of suddenly beginning to understand all the 
emotional bandwidth it could accommodate. Um, before that, we had maybe been a little too narrow in, in seeing it as a kind of, um, you know, some people would call it like grief porn at that point. Um, so, though even then, I feel like there were flashes of humor, like when Kevin loses the bagel in episode two. But <laughs> yeah. a- anyway, um, I feel like like we started to understand the show um, that we wanted to write sort of toward the end of, of season one. And then we had time to kind of reflect on it between those seasons. And we knew we were, um, you know, free of the book. Um, and then we were able to move the story. And I, I don't know what happened. It was just like um, the show got weirder. It got funnier. Um, but it, it still retained. And I think, I think maybe we just honed, we had a sharper sense of what the show was about and it was sort of about all forms of religious thinking, um, including like, you know, atheistic thinking about religion. Um, so I don't know. I, th- I just think it happens with some shows. Some shows are born and you see what they are in the very first episode and other shows sort of evolve over time and, and find themselves. And I think the leftovers is, um, you know, the latter. And so you felt like you actually got, you had to take a step back and look at it as a formed thing to see where it could go as a, as a, as a piece of television. Is that? Is yeah. That and f- I, I think unless a show has a, a very, very clear sense of genre, um, you know, you, you would have to do that between seasons anyway. It's sort of like, what, what do we want to do now? And, and the leftovers, there were really no models for, for the show. It, it, you know, it's post-apocalyptic in a certain sense, but it's not like any other post-apocalyptic show. It's as much a family drama as it was an apocalyptic show. Um, and it didn't have a kind of survivalist uh, narrative. It, it was really like, how can these people be, is it possible for these people to be okay given what has happened to them in their world? Right. At, at one of the other things about it is, is not just being a family drama or post, sort of post-apocalyptic, but one of the things that I took note of early on, and I think you just expanded on massively in the second and third season, is this almost psychedelic, there's psychedelic moments of the show, these almost like, dr- dr- you know, drug trip-esque moments, which I think, it, you know, interestingly, it seems to be like a trend that I feel like you guys were early on in television. Now th- now you see things like Legion or Preacher, these like really kind of uh, American gods, shows that are very trippy. How much was was there an intention to 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 create this kind of thin membrane between what is imagined, what is what is felt or imagined and what is actually happening? Yeah. Well, you know, here's, here's one of the many points where I have to, you know, give huge uh, credit to Damon Lindelof. Um, you know, when, when I wrote the book, what I wanted to do was set up a situation. This, my sense of religion is this. All religions have this um, eruption of the supernatural that happened way in the past that nobody can access. And what we get is a narrative built around that supernatural moment, whether it's 2000 years ago or longer than that. Um, and, you know, w- we hear in our scriptures that there were, uh, there were miracles and there was divine intervention in the world. But as far as we know, we're living in a pretty ordinary world. We're just slogging through our lives. And I was just trying to put 
the events of the story as close as I could to uh, the supernatural eruption. So it was just three years after. So it was basically, it was almost like our characters were American suburbanites, but they're living in biblical times. But, but I was really like treating it in a kind of completely realistic way. And I think Damon, who is much more interested in science fiction and uh, fantasy and, and comic books, um, kind of brought his sensibility to bear. And I think where you really see it is with the character of Kevin. Because in the book, Kevin is basically the guy saying like, hey, let's just get back to normal. Let's go back to our lives. Our lives were good. Let's not lose um, what was good about, you know, let's keep our families together. Let's keep our town going. Um, let's start playing softball again. I mean, it was almost a comic role of a, a guy who just was intent on um, going back to the way things were. And instead, I think Damon really pushed to send Kevin uh, on this, what was either a religious journey or um, a descent into madness. And I think, you know, if you look at religious narratives, the two are almost always... Um, you know, tied together. I, I think that, that putting our central character into this kind of um, place where he's not sure if he has a religious mission or if he's losing his mind kind of created that trippy quality that you're talking about. So what's interesting about that is, is you're saying that, that your sort of intention for this story was about like a post sort of religious uh, 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 supernatural experience and how people are grappling with that, or at least partially. But this, but the second and third season absolutely seems to put a a at least at least in the storytelling, from my view, is is it puts a present day or a sort of a, a notion of supernatural occurrences um, in real time in the story, right? So how how did that change? Like what this actually was about? I mean, does, does, does that shift the focus from being about how you deal with something that has happened to how you deal with something that is currently happening or is it all on the part of that same continuum? Well, you know, so I think Damon was playing off the, uh, essential story in the book, which, you know, is this thing has happened. This departure has happened. People are reeling from it but they don't have a religious explanation for it. And in, in the book, you have three sort of uh, cults arising out of, the, uh, out of the departure. You know, the guilty remnant is the main one, um, but there's also uh, Holy Wayne, who is this, uh, either a charlatan or a miracle worker. And then there's a group called the Barefoot People who barely made it into the book. But I think the big change was um, to, to get Kevin into a religious uh, situation where um, you know he's being haunted by Patty, who uh, and the question is: Is that madness, or is um, is something else going on there? Right. So, and that and that is like sort of we we, we don't ever come to. I'm sure people must ask us all the time, right? Or like, what really happened? I mean, I you know one of the things that I think is it must be interesting for you. Like Damon has this. I'm not going to say baggage, but he's got this kind of legacy of lost behind him, right? Where the expectations for resolution are so high. I mean, knowing that, and knowing that you guys had kind of a short, you know, this is a three season show. There must've been an enormous expectation from people who were fans of this show. And you must get questions all the time. Like what was real and what wasn't, or what, what did this really mean? Or what, what didn't it mean? I mean, do you have, do you guys have definitive answers for certain things? Like I could ask you, 
you know, Kevin's experiences on the other side, you know, the um, international assassin episode, right? Is that what, is that the right title? I believe yeah, it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. That, you know, which, yep. which, which, which when I saw, I was like, my mind was blown. It was just so completely out of, you know, it just took you into this whole other space. You know, how much of that is fact or fiction? And by the way, is it important to say like this happened or it didn't happen? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, this is, you're at the heart of what went on in, in our writer's room. Um, because I started out with the idea that departure stands for what is unknowable in the world. For all the religious thinking that's gone on since humans have been on the planet, um, I, as an agnostic, I don't think anyone has the truth about what happens when we die. I just think this is an unknown. Um, Now, I spend my life interacting with people who think they do know. Um, That's just that's just the human condition. You know, some people think Jesus died and came back from the dead, and some people uh, don't think that's the case at all. Um, so, you know, when we're in the realm of faith and religious stories, um, it, my sense is that these things are unknowable. You make a decision to believe them. You can't know whether they actually happened. You know, somebody wants to show the Shroud of Turin, because finally, thank God, we have proof. Um, right. But I don't think... These things are provable. And so one of the rules that we tried to adhere to as much as possible was if we did venture into a potentially supernatural space like International Assassin, that there would, would also be a kind of real-world explanation that could just as easily account for this. So Kevin took some sort of poison. He was in a state that was, um, you know... In a, in a way, a, a coma or something like that, that he was in an altered state and he had a vision that um, was a, a, some heightened form of dream that um, actually had a positive effect for him. Like he did spiritual warfare in his dream and came out of it um, with his problem more or less solved. Like I think that's a plausible model for what happened there. Or you could say, in a kind of Greek myth sort of way, he traveled into the world of the dead and did battle with his adversary there and, right. and came back from it. I, I think, um, you know, we really tried in our own minds to say this works best if there's more than one explanation and then it's up to the reader in the same way that it's up to us as human beings to accept or reject a religious narrative. Right, but at some point he crawls out of the ground, right? I'm sorry, this is this is what I've just been thinking about a lot, which is at some point he like crawls, literally is buried and crawls out of the ground. That happens in the show. It's witnessed yeah. by another character. Is is there, is there, I mean, I guess I guess, you know, okay, in this drug-induced state, he went out into the forest, buried himself in dirt. Right, I mean, I guess there's an explanation for it. No, yeah, yeah, no, I think, uh, right. But th- this is something that we, we looked at. If you, if you just Google people buried alive, you will find that that um, there are stories, there are multiple stories that people have lived through being buried alive, and people were mistaken for dead, buried in the ground, you know, and then emerged. Now, I don't think it happens every day, but you know, the leftovers are sort of daring you in, in that sense um, to uh, to solve you it know, yourself or figure yeah, think of it yourself. I mean, I mean, it, it's and and look, Michael and. John and Matt, when they talk to Kevin in season three, you know, Kevin is denying that there's anything special about him. Uh, and they're like, but look, I shot you and you didn't die. And I, you know, you, you <laughs> right. came out of the ground 
um, you, you know, you should have drowned, but there was an earthquake. Like, clearly, amazing things are happening around Kevin. Um, right. But, you know, but, but it's just as likely he's did. in the right place at the right time or it's, you know, perceived one way, but actually something. I mean, what we see is, or what they see, rather, would be their perception of it, which may not match perfectly with reality. Yeah, yeah. And look, every time there's a disaster, somebody is saved. Um in some very unlikely way. And the only way they can explain it is to say, you know, God was looking out for me. Um, and then the corollary of that is kind of horrible, which is, but he wasn't looking out for those other people. He must have had something against them. Um, and so, it, you know, I, I think maybe I'm being too, too defensive here, but I, I think we tried to structure stories so that, um, you know, you, you could interpret things in a religious way, or you could interpret them in a kind of, you know, the world is a really weird place and strange things happen every day. Right. Which is actually what the, a lot of the tension for me watching the show was and thinking about the story, because it, you know, there's part of it where, where when you're watching, uh, you're trying to say, I'm saying, what am I, what is this about ultimately? Right. Because you've got certain episodes where the entirety of the episode is just this this tight sort of dramatic exchange between two or three people. And and it's almost as if that's a, it's not a bottle episode, but it's this kind of moment that it can stand on its own. But then the arc of the show, it seems to be getting somewhere the whole time, right? And I've actually had a debate with people, you know, is this a show about the supernatural? Is this a show about dealing with grief? Is this a show about asking questions that you can't answer? You know, is it all of those things? Is there one that you thought, like, this is what we're trying to say with this as a, as a piece of art? Well, uh, you know, all of those things come under the rubric, I think, of um, how do we explain the mysterious and the unknowable things in our lives? And so all of these characters are in search of a story that, that makes sense to them, um, and in the end, as you know from the finale, I think, and, and, and you know it from the uh, season finales of, of each of the respective seasons, we were really concerned with, um, can these people be okay? Can they make a family together? Can, um, can they keep their sanity? And... Uh, can they find love and happiness? Um, you know, those, those were ultimately, we decided the most important questions of the show rather than, um, can they find the answer to what happened and why in the past? I think it's really about, um, how they make a decision to forge ahead, um, knowing that this horrible thing happened recently. Right, and yet... Well, I don't even know it's a horrible thing, right? They're not even sure about that. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it's right. a horrible thing. Maybe, everybody's, maybe they're all in heaven. That's the, that's the yeah. other... Right, the alternative is that the leftover, the people who are departed are in having a great time somewhere, and everybody on Earth is stuck, you know, in their horrible, you know, sort of post-apocalyptic lives. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, <laughs> I think... Um, but that, to me, mirrors... The, you know, the way we're all trying to get on with our daily lives without, um, you know, our world is unjust in all sorts of ways. Um, some people have decided that 
they find meaning in life and fighting that injustice. Other people are just trying to, you know, feed their families and, and get through the day. And still other people are, um, you know, following these uh, dreams for personal fulfillment. You know, it's like we don't all agree even about the nature of the reality that we're living in, but we're all trying to find a narrative that allows us to live in it. Okay, right. And so, yeah, there is this sort of open to interpretation angle. And yet, I'll challenge you a little bit. Like, on the final episode, you've got Nora, who has come to actually be, you know, in some ways the central character of the show, um, uh, explaining this kind of incredible experience where, I mean, I mean, I was sort of was very confused about this and not necessarily in a negative way, but it left me with like a thousand questions. She tells this story about having gone through, use this device to, and I'm guessing that Damon had a heavy influence on this idea of the device and, and this sort of this trip, but going to the other side, essentially where the people who had, who had departed where it were living and essentially kind of an alternate uh, version of our reality. Um, is that did I mean this is a stupid question? Did that happen? Is that it? Just, she she just telling a story? Like what am I supposed to take away from that? And how important <laughs> is that? To the, the, uh, you keep asking me the same question. Sorry, I know, I know, um, I do. But in this case, like specifically, it's not like a vague thing. She says, "I went through the machine. I showed up in this whole other place. Everybody's gone. I saw my family. I mean, it's very specific. It's not vague at all. What, what's the what, what is the what are we supposed to think about that? Um, you know, I think you have at least two paths in the same way you do with, with Kevin's. And, um, you know, one of the reasons we didn't show Nora's journey and we just had her tell it, I think, is to put people in, in the same position that, um, you know, we're in in relation to a religious narrative. We have to decide to believe it. Right. Kevin oh, has faith. To Essentially, to he has to, when she says, you don't believe me, or why don't, or, you know, do you believe me? And he says, why wouldn't I? That's essentially a religious decision that he's making. That's right. He's saying, I have faith in you. And, and she needs to hear that. Now, he, he can have faith in something that's real, or he can have faith in something that's not real. Now, my argument is that the, the story is essentially the same, whether it happened or it didn't, because what Nora is saying to Kevin is, I have given up on the idea of being reunited with my family, which, you know, if we look at their breakup in episode four, you know, he's saying, um, you, you can't be with me in this world because you're drawn to, you haven't resolved the loss of your kids. You haven't made peace with what happened in the departure. And she's agreeing. She hasn't. She can't really fully be with him. Right. And, you know, he can't fully be with her because he's, uh, he's been to this other side, too. And so I, I would say that what you see in Episode 7 is Kevin rejecting the other side for this world. And what you see in Episode 8 is Nora rejecting the other side for this world. So for the first time in that finale, you see two people who are fully in this world together. And do you and, think... And, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so then that's like a, to me, that's sort of the important part of the ending. Now, whether Nora went there or whether she is telling a story to reflect some insight that she's had, she's in, in effect creating a fiction to tell a truth about herself. Um, the outcome is, is the same either way.
Tomorrow is also brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. And HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food to waste. Ryan, hi. Hi. Um, You were just telling me you made this delicious uh, HelloFresh pizza. Yeah, um, and I made a beautiful chicken as well. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, I don't eat chicken, but uh, but HelloFresh does vegetarian stuff too. Pizza was good. Delicious. How many slices did you eat of the pizza? All, the entire thing. I made it alone, and I <laughs> ate it alone. <laughs> you, ate the, you in a dark room with the HelloFresh pizza. Yeah, it's a really it's a great scene. Um, sad for Ryan, but delicious pizza. My very own Julie and Julia. <laughs> um, all right, so be like Ryan. Don't wait. You can get 30 bucks off your first week of deliveries if you visit HelloFresh.com and enter the code TOPOLSKI30 when you subscribe, which I, spe- I said I specifically want my name in the promo code. And they were like, whatever you want, Mr. Topolsky. Um, yeah, so get HelloFresh right now. Get 30 bucks off, and, and you could be sitting alone eating pizza too. trying to imagine this show as a six season arc or a seven season arc and and and, and clearly there are some stories that are not meant to be endless like to you was this was there a very finite amount of this idea or this story that you could tell uh you know that that's a that's a really uh interesting question about this show because when i had the idea for the book you know my thought was that that is a very big idea. It's potentially a global idea. I imagine that people in different religious traditions would account for the event differently and would behave differently, but I decided to tell it in a kind of microcosm of this sort of American suburban world that I often write about. Um, and even as we were dealing with that microcosm in season one, you know, we were thinking about ways to expand it. And I think, um, bringing miracle into it in season two was a, was a really smart one. Um, and you know, there were probably, uh, other ways, you know, we didn't have to jump to where we jumped. Um, you know, we skipped how many years from season two, uh, to season three. It's a whole, it's a number of years, like three years go by. Um, so I think you could have probably told stories, in in that period, I mean, you just, it just depends on how you break it down. Right. Um, the pl- so the plan was for a more was for a larger uh, a larger arc. Well, you know, this is this is the interesting thing about um, serialized television is, um, at least in our case, uh, you know, HBO makes their decisions one year at a time. I mean, you know, I think it might be different for something like Game of Thrones, where you have seven books. And, you know, they can say, if we're going to do this, we're going to commit to telling this whole saga. And maybe that's, you know, seven seasons, maybe that's eight seasons to do that. Um, But we just had, we had the book and they said, okay, let's make, we made a pilot and they said, let's make season one. And then between season one and and season two, they said, all right, let's make another. Um, And as you know, our our viewership um, actually dropped between season one and season two. And so... Um, you know, we were 
aware of the fact that we might not have season three, but, but we didn't come to HBO at the very beginning and say, here's a, here are five seasons of the leftovers that we want to tell. Um, we really, we had the book and, um, we had an idea for season one, but we, um, you know, that's as far as we were able to go. So I think what would have happened if we, if HBO said you can have two more seasons is, uh, we would have looked at dividing the narrative in different ways. There were certainly, um, I would have loved to see more about Jill in college. I would have loved to see um, more about uh, John Murphy and Erica Murphy. Maybe there were new characters that we could have um, brought in in uh, season three in the way that we did in season two. I mean, I just think there are um, all sorts of other ways to tell a story and, and come out at the same place. I wonder if if uh, it's interesting to think about that extent, sort of the show having a larger, wider um, sort of path, because at some point, I mean, you look at something like nine eleven, and uh, at some point we we get used to it, right? I mean, you sort of go, this happened, and you know, now we're living in a, this post nine eleven world, and it seemed very raw at the beginning, and now I think where we're at at this point is we've all kind of it's in our memory. You know, it's not a, it's not a present. I mean, the, 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 the departure, the, is it very present even years after, I mean, the, the final season is what, seven years after, right. Mm-hmm. And still massively present. Would you've gotten to a point, do you think where it didn't matter anymore to, to a lot of people where it just be, was this kind of mundane thing humming along in the background? Well, I, you know, I, I would, yes. And I, I think there's, this was exactly what the show was trying and the book we're trying to examine was, you know, there are these events that sort of divide the world into before and after. And some people live with the sense that this event was the single most important thing that ever happened and other people move on. And, and so the book is really about the tension between the people who want to move on and the people who want to remember and the guilty remnant stands for the people who want to remember. And I I was very much reflecting on 9-11 at that point, because I think in the immediate aftermath of that, we just thought our world has changed forever in profound ways. And I think that insight is true. You know, we're still fighting a war in Afghanistan that is um, the result of of 9-11. And so for soldiers who died there last week, uh, and for their families, 9-11 remains this... uh, you know, huge event, but most of us have moved on. And, you know, I'm always struck, um, like when I read uh, Art Spiegelman's Mouse, you know, his parents were Holocaust survivors, and there they were living in the American suburbs in the 50s in this world of optimism and Elvis, but they were people who had only a few years before been in, um, you know, in death camps and seen just this incredibly horrific thing. And I, and I think really part of the leftovers is exploring these events that um, for some people are completely central and destabilizing and that other people are able to kind of relegate to the past and say, we're, you know, we've started over, we're on a new narrative now. So, and, and and even, even with the leftovers, I think that the seven year anniversary has created this eruption of apocalyptic fever, but that um, in other ways, the world has moved on like the Australian wedding, you know, the goat there, isn't slaughtered. You know, it's treated, it's like there's this kind of 
sense that the world's gotten a little kinder and gentler, that that normality has begun to um, seep into it. Like, you know, I think in Miracle, when that goat is slaughtered in a restaurant, that's just this sense that things are really raw and present in that world. And, and later, I think, by the seventh year, um, things are a little calmer. Like, everybody's expecting it to blow up, but then when... Um, Tom and Jill call Laurie, you know, they're just, they're kind of marking the holiday together. They're like, oh, you shouldn't be alone on this day. But there isn't a sense that, um, you know, the world is about to blow, even though, you know, we kind of stoked those feelings early on. And every year, you know, every year in the anniversary of 9-11, I I think it does become fresh again. You know, it's one of the ways our memory works. Yeah, it's interesting. It's as a as a as a TV show. There is no. You're right. I mean, you said there. I think you said there wasn't a model for it for this kind of narrative. I mean, but there isn't. I'm trying to map out like where does this. You know, what is the dramatic conclusion? And you guys went to a place that was almost like the anticlimax at the end of it, where it was like the th- worst thing that could happen happened. Where we think it's going to happen. And what actually happens is life goes on. I mean, it's this really interesting, you know, arc that you've got to, I mean, thinking about it as a kind of, as a, as a television project, right? I mean, at the end of the day, like you're telling a story and the story has this sort of artistry at its foundation and this sort of need to be, to be told or to be heard, but, but you've got to express it. Like you've got to have a guy who's doing the lights and you've got to put cameras on people and you've got to write lines and turn it into some kind of, you know, this television show, which could be very thin um, I feel like that must have been, was that frustrating to have to figure out, like, how do we create this dramatic, you know, uh, you, you got to hang on to the next episode arc when, when the actual story is, is, is really, it's not, it's subtle. I mean, in a, in a, in what, what we've been talking about here, what you're saying, the kind of tension is, is a subtle tension, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, this was the, the, you're right. It was a, it was a huge challenge for us. And I think, one of the ways that um, we, one of the things we learned was that, that we could let the show be subtle, that, that um, our characters' states of mind were really what was the, the subject of the show. I mean, if you go back to the pilot, you'll see that there's a lot of uh, physical violence. Um, and yeah, the, and dog, started, the dogs and stuff, right? The dogs yeah. being shot, you know, Kevin gets... Uh, it, when he gets removed from the guilty remnant house is sort of slammed against the car. There's this riot where he's like hitting people with, uh, with his nightstick. It, and I think we were operating in maybe a more conventional space of like social chaos and breakdown that, that is familiar to people who watch apocalyptic shows. And, and what we discovered was um, what's really novel about this and the place that where it works best is, uh, you know, a conference related to the departure where people are making speeches or um, a, a town that gives tours to celebrate um, the fact that it was untouched by the departure, that, that um, these spaces that were closer to normal uh, were the places where the weirdness came out the most and the places where maybe we pushed it into a more conventional arena the show seemed less special. Who who came up with the penis scanner? Uh, and tell me a little bit about the kind of how that was introduced as a concept in the in the writers' room, or however you guys did this. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it, it's very funny. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, 
where where exactly it came, you know, um, ever since the jogging scene in the pilot, um, there have been a lot of uh, jokes uh, related to Kevin and his uh, his endowment. And, uh, you know, in, in International Assassin, he's uh, he gets a pat down from security guards who say, uh, oh, congratulations. Um, <laughs> oh, I didn't realize this. And, I didn't put this together. This is a running theme throughout the show. Yeah, it's a bit of, it's a, bit of a, a running joke. So uh, I, I honestly can't remember where it came out. What, what was funny for me was that I was like, okay, that's, that's funny, but I didn't really get stuck on it. But when the show came out, it, was, it just got what seemed to me a disproportionate amount of uh, commentary. Right. I mean, it is a very funny idea, but, but there's so many weird ideas floating around on an episode of The Leftovers, especially one that takes place on the other side, that, um, you know, all I can say is I was a little uh, amazed at how much attention it got. Right. I mean, this, I mean, the last season, I mean, the, the final season, there are some, uh, uh, there's some true absurdity happening, right? Like the, the, um, the perfect strangers thing. I mean, that whole, that whole episode, uh, uh, which is called, sorry, what was the title of the episode? Uh, uh, don't be ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I was like, what's the catch? What's Balky's catchphrase? I mean, that episode was, I it started with them, just the music. Right. And then and I'm like, okay, what is this music? I know it. I couldn't place it, and then I remembered. But that whole—I mean—is that there's a, the humor in the final season is is so at the surface. I mean, is that was that inten- I mean, was it intentional just to go crazy? Was it intentional to just go a little bit more light, or or was that also a reflection of the the characters coming out of this kind of darkness into something that felt like normalcy or like they could laugh again? You know, there was this post nine eleven sentiment. Well, it's the end of uh, sarcasm. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Sarc- you know, like we can't be, you, you know, comedy, you can never do comedy again after 9-11 um, or be snarky. And, and that obviously has turned out to not be true. It was this kind of the coming back into the normalcy is just these kind of ridiculous moments or was it just yeah, the absurdity you know, of. The- um, I, I think it's partly a, a reflection of the world of the show and partly a reflection of the mood in, in the writer's room. I, I can't really explain it. You know, the first year, uh, it was a heavy room and it was a heavy show. And I think the second year, uh, we sort of found, um, the right balance for the show. And, and we kind of started to understand it more clearly and to realize that there was more room for absurdity and, and humor. Um, and then I think because we were ending the third year, there were, there were just like a, a kind of a, there was an exuberance there that, that I think might be hard for, I mean, I think you see it in the show in various ways. I mean, it remains a emotionally wrenching experience for people, but there's, there is this kind of wild humor in it that, um, that, that we really embraced. And I think the fact that we knew we were ending um, was part of it. And then I think, you know, a lot of it comes from the person who's leading the room. And I think Damon started to feel like um, the show worked best at those moments when people were somebody in the room is going like, you can't do this. This is outrageous. This is beyond the pale. Like, like that was the space that he wanted to to operate in. <laughs> That's where the dick and, scanner uh, came from. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but and, it's in, and it's... you know, the musical choices would sometimes uh, highlight that, you know, we, we cheesy odd music um, playing against something that was really emotional would, um, create the kind of mood that felt leftoversy to us. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that 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 whole um, episode where he's the president, uh, you know, it's like that interaction with the with the children, you know, whose shoes had been had been missing. Um, it actually makes the, the the absurdity of that moment somehow makes that exchange feel more heavy in a way. I thought, you know, it was like yeah. in, the, in yep. the midst of this lightness, there's actually still a core of dark sort of a cloud that is there, you know, which was really interesting. I mean, the, of course, yeah. the, you know, the dick scanner, there's really no, there's no dark side to that whatsoever. That's all no, joy. But I will say, you know, in, in all these cases, um, especially for, uh, you know, people who are, you know, wanting to kind of separate season one from the rest of the show, all these things are, are direct callbacks to, to season one. You know, when the kid says there is no family, there's a sign that Patty held up and showed to Kevin in, I think, the second episode of the show. And Perfect Strangers uh, also appeared in the uh, second episode of the show. I think. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's... That's uh, uh, Kevin Garvey Sr.'s in the uh, mental hospital. And, oh, wow. and Kevin goes to visit him, and that's what he's watching. And he says all four of them... Uh, all four of them disappeared. And then in season two, Mark Lynn Baker is caught uh, on the lamb in Mexico because he's like faked. His oh, departure. right. Oh, wow. Yeah. That really is. I kind of didn't, I mean, I, this is truly a show in the, that's for the built for the age of the internet. I mean, these are things that, that had I spent a little, I mean, had I spent more time re, like researching this on Reddit, I assume that I would have uh, made the connection that all of those, all those occurred. I did not remember that he is that there's a perfect stranger's thread running through the the entire arc of the show, which is yeah. impressive. An impressive piece of <laughs> an impressive piece of writing or trolling. I'm not sure which, but either way, it's really it's really incredible. Okay, so I know uh, you got to go, but I have a couple other quick things. First, um, are there misconceptions that people have about this show that that you would like to dispel, or things that you hear and just think, oh, that's they completely got it wrong. No, I, I mean, if if you presented me with specific ones, I might um, I might be able to answer that. But I, I do think that we created something that um, you know tried to avoid a kind of um, definitive interpretation, and so um, we can't complain if people come up with um, alternative theories. I can think they're wrong in the same way that that they can think somebody else is wrong. Right. Um, but I can't, I can't claim to be irritated by it because it, it is a show that um, puts both viewers and characters into a, a position where they're, um, you know, mean, the meaning-making parts of their brain are in overdrive. Right. You'd be kind of a jerk if you presented the show with lots of options and then were mad that people had <laughs> different yeah, opinions stupid, about it. That's a stupid answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> I'm dumb for asking the question. You literally just said, like, you know, it's open to interpretation. So it'd be very rude of you to say that their interpretation was wrong. Yeah, but but I will say that, you know, there are people who are obnoxious about uh, thinking that they, you know, I, th- I think the people who wanted a definitive, a really definitive interpretation often had kind of a hostile um, attitude toward the show. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know... Uh, and I understand that uh, we we weren't um, giving people some of the things that they conventionally expect from stories like this, and well, so I understand that that could be frustrating. And there is, especially with audiences th- th- where you've got like the internet audience, where you've got a Reddit you know group sort of t- talking about this stuff. Like I interviewed Damon years ago about Lost. We had this long interview, and and I di- I completely didn't get the ending of it. I was like, I just don't understand how this all works. Like I don't understand the machinery of how this thing works. And people, uh, I remember there were comments on the on the YouTube thread. 
people were so mad at me for not understanding the end of loss. Like there was this real passion about, I wanted it to be, or I perceived it to be this way. And, and that's the way it's got to be. And if you don't see it that way, which I find it to be a strange sort of with art, which is typically supposed to have some level of, you know, your take on it in the mix. It's interesting to see how passionate people get if they feel like they're not served or underserved or served differently than they expected uh, on a, on a story. Which yeah, is, no, I, I was, I was very uh, struck by this. I mean, people are, are very, very smart. Um, and in some ways, you know, are able to read into the show and interpret the show in ways that are like kind of awe-inspiring to us. Cause they go sometimes way deeper than, than we consciously went. Um, yeah. But people want a kind of reassurance from stories they can be very sophisticated in every other way, but um, if a story doesn't provide them reassurance, um, they can get uh, very cranky. They can they can turn violent. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, okay, so are you done? The leftovers is done. There's not going to be any more leftovers, right? Are we have we seen the but last of it? We have. Are you happy to be done with it? Are you happy to have put it to bed? Like, do you feel like you've got it out yeah. of your system? <laughs> I did. I did. I mean, I, I think we ended strong and, and that is a really good feeling. I don't feel like we left anything on the field to, to use a, a good coach metaphor. Um, and, you know, I started writing the book in, uh, you know, 2008 or nine. So it's been a, a huge chunk of my life in you know, eight or nine years uh, spent thinking about the leftovers. So I'm ready to move on. And I have a new book coming out uh, in August called Mrs. Fletcher which is kind of a return to um, some of the concerns I had before uh, the leftovers. It has a lot in common with a book like Little Children. It's about, um, you know, sex in suburbia, to put it in the broadest possible terms, and about culture wars in America. Did you grow up in the suburbs? Yeah, I grew up in a working-class suburb outside of New York City, a town called Garwood, uh, New Jersey. There seems to be a theme, um, you know, and not to go down a rabbit hole here, but with some of this work where there's this kind of, you know, incredible pain that everybody, not everybody, but it seems the characters, a lot of your characters inhabit this incredible pain under this facade or this incredible pain and, and, and this sort of grappling with things in secret uh, that almost like all, all characters share but are all distinct in some way. You know, I mean, little children, they're certainly a plethora of that to go around. Um, and this new book, Mrs. Fletcher, I mean, I assume it's not a, not a, uh, rom-com. <laughs> right? um, well, it has, it has, it has some rom-com in it. It's really, it's about a, uh, a single mom. She is a divorced mother, 46 years old. And in chapter one, she drops her only child, an 18 year old son off at college. And the book follows them, um, they're both alone, you know, on their own for their, for the first time. Um, and it follows them through that first year of him at college. So, um, and, you know, she has some very interesting, um, sexual experiences among other things. She gets, um, really interested in porn and, and, uh, so it's, it's sort of about like just being an adult on your own, able to invent yourself, reinvent yourself at, uh, in your forties. And then he's a, doing the college thing where you're supposed to be able to reinvent yourself, but he's really struggling. She's almost having the college experience that, that he's not having. <laughs> Interesting. And, 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 and technology is a big piece of this. I mean, the internet is a big piece of that or no. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, because I do think that 
technology has changed the way that we think about sex and the way that we actually have sex. So Yeah, I was going to um, say, yes, I mean, you mentioned porn, and, and my immediate thought was, okay, so there's like an internet porn habit. Because like porn used to be a thing that was kind of an effort to go get. Like you couldn't just happen across it that easily. And now it's like, well, of course, like in the midst of, you know, you're shopping for paper towels on Amazon and maybe just a quick look at Pornhub to see what's going on over there. Yeah. So it's like much closer well, to the surface. No, I know. I remember the first time I, you know, went online and looked at porn and it was just like, it was just so much of it. And it seemed to be wanting to like explode from my computer because I had no idea, you know, how, it, how, to, how to deal with it. And I just thought, oh my God, Pandora's box is open. Like if I had, you know, if I had had access to this when I was a teenager, like what would that have been like? Because I had enough trouble just, you know, with a couple of magazines in the, the closet. Yeah. No, it's great. It's incredible. Well, this is, so this is, and this is, I assume, somewhat explored in the book, Mrs. Fletcher, which is out. When is that out? August 1st. August 1st. So pretty soon. Uh, Tom, yep. thank you so much uh, uh, for doing this. I really enjoyed this conversation. You've answered many questions that I have about, um, that I had about the show. And, and this is just fascinating to think about and, and uh, definitely looking forward um, to the book. So well, thanks great. so much. Thanks so much. Great okay. to talk to you, Josh. Well, that is our show for this week. We'll be back soon with more tomorrow. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best. Though I've just been told that season one of your family has just ended and HBO hasn't said yet whether it would renew it for season two.